guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest, I'm delighted to have Pat Davison back on the show. Pat has a PhD in exercise physiology and has previously been a professor of exercise science at Brooklyn College and Springfield College. Pat has an extensive background in strongman training, wrestling, and martial arts, and Pat is one of the most intelligent and well-read individuals I've had the pleasure to interact with on the show. Pat is just basically one of those rare individuals who realizes that everything is connected, and to just put it simply, Pat gets it. On this episode, Pat and I discuss everything and anything to do with the brain. This has been an area of research that Pat has been looking into in depthly over the last period of time. This was a really great episode, guys, and I hope you really, really enjoyed. Okay, Pat Davidson, it is an absolute pleasure and an absolute honor to have you come back onto the podcast after our three-part epic monster show that we had after your first appearance and the amount of feedback I got off uh, off all the listeners about that. Like, I'm not messing. I must have got at least, I'd say, half a dozen, if not seven or eight Facebook messages of people going, just listen to your Pat Davidson episodes. Oh my God, incredible! Get that man back on. They're like, oh, we love Pat. We love Pat. So uh, it was, uh, it was, you know, it was really received well. So it's great to have you back on. So basically, this is just going to be a catch up, like I said offline, um, about what's new in Pat Davidson's world. I know you said you're doing some work around neurotransmitters and fatigue. You recently came back from a weekend retreat with Dr. Ben House, and uh, we also spoke about Mass Two's coming out soon. And obviously, we'll get into some other areas. And I actually have some questions that I'd like to get your thoughts on, some training-related ones, um, particularly around uh, training residuals and actually um, fatigue, um, fatigue, basically fatigue, so uh, recovery adaptation curve uh, uh, time graphs, something I really want to talk right. to you about. So let's just start off with what's new, Pat, what's going on in your life, uh, professional, personal, whatever. Well, first of all, it's, it's always an honor to hear that anybody found something that I had to say either valuable or entertaining or worthwhile. So, you know, whoever, whoever felt that way, thank you for, for that. And thank you for sending that feedback over to Robbie. Um, and, and it kind of, it's interesting. Like, uh, you you brought up some of the, the big hitter things that I've been working on and I definitely want to talk about that. Um, you know, the, the neurotransmitter piece, I did a, a podcast with Derek Hansen. And I wrote a paper that Carl Valley put up on Simply Faster that really, you know, the paper is able to, to go into the weeds and get into the nitty gritty on that topic. Um, you know, I, I got back on Friday, today's Sunday, uh, from spending a week in Costa Rica with, with Ben House for the Beginner's Mind uh, retreat, which nice. is, nice. you know, hard to, hard to summarize, hard to wrap your your, your hands around and say, this is exactly what that experience was. Um, but for sure, let's, let's get into that. And, um, you know, like I, I do know that it's time to, to get back to work big time on mass two and put that thing out there. Um, I, you know, for those of you who have read mass, uh, you kind of know that it's, it's inspired by Rocky four, like the whole thing, the titles, and, and the original title of Mass was Operation Drago. That was that was kind of the cult underground title that original people got their hands on. Yeah. And um, so Mass Two is going to be inspired by Terminator Two. <laughs> uh, 
You know, the only, the only I love way it. you can, yeah. The, the only way you can follow up a book that's inspired by a Stallone movie is to follow, is to bring a book brought, inspired by an Arnold movie. Really? It's the, the really? only way. And, um, you know, once people get to that Asta La Vista baby chapter, they're gonna they're gonna wish they didn't even start reading the damn thing or start doing the program. And come here, tell me this: will 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 mastery then be based on the Borg? You know, it's entirely possible. <laughs> you will have to assimilate or die in mastery. Just for uh, the or just a, for adapt the, or die. Yeah, yeah. Just for the listeners, that's a pure insider joke between yourself, Pat, and a lot of the a lot of the IFAS crew. So sorry to leave people in the loop on that. We we might get to that story at some stage. Oh, that story is so funny. You know, there might be enough people that actually uh, know what that is, and um, and you know, there I do know someone that has the audio recording of that talk. Are you serious? So, yeah, it, it exists. So it might make its way to the internet at some point, but I don't I don't know if that's possible. You're gonna but, have to, uh, you're gonna have to patent that shit, sir. Like a T-shirt with, with mass tree and an adapter die in the back. Or assi- assimilate, sorry, assimilate. Assimilate or die, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, so whichever way you want to start, you want to start with the weekend with Dr. House, you want to start with neurotransmitter research, whichever topic you want to go first. And then, uh, as I said, I want, to, I want to get some some of your thoughts on some ideas or, or thinking I've been doing about the concepts of training residuals and stimulus um, recovery adaptation uh, timelines. So uh, wherever you want to go, so wherever you want to start, Pat. I feel like I have to start with this past week in Costa Rica. Okay. Because, um, you know, I, I just think that what Ben is doing is the biggest game changer in the field, quite honestly. Wow. Because, you know, the only way that you can really learn a foreign language is immersion. And what he's doing is immersion therapy. Like, he is creating retreats and seminars that are, it's, it, you're not going there to sit in a classroom and just hear a lecture the way that you would at every other thing. He is literally creating an environment that is conducive for optimal human health and performance. And you have to live in it when you go there. So, you know, the format of this thing was you're going to go to Costa Rica. You're going to live at a resort on a mountain in Uvita, Costa Rica. You're going to be fed locally grown, locally sourced uh, food that is cooked on site by people that are trained functional medicine people and outstanding cooks. You're going to be instructed in the classroom from 8 a.m. until noon. And then after that, we're going to go out and we're going to explore the jungle as a group. We're going to go to the beach. We're going to play games. We're going to be out in the sun. Uh, after that, we're all going to hang out together. Um, you know, there were, there were about just short of 40 of us. So we're going to, you know, just relax. Uh, you know, we lifted weights as a group. Then we had conversations. You'd see like people, uh, like we had Dr. Mike T. Nelson taking people off to the, to one room and doing assessments while everybody's looking on. Um, you know, I, I ran a couple of, of, uh, Feldenkrais inspired movement classes. Uh, there were meditation points in time led by Ben's father, uh, Kim house, who is a Zen Buddhist practitioner. Um, it was everything that people talk about as being important that Ben house 
is going to create as the environment that you're going to live in mm. for a week. Mm. And, and then you're going to have to go back to the world and you're going to have to deal with the experience that you just had, which is more than a verbal intellectual discussion on these things. It's more than just like, you know, let me tell you about light and how light, you know, the different wavelengths of light impact your physiology. You're going to live in full spectrum light and you're going to watch the sunset and you're going to watch the sunrise and you're going to move outdoors in different environments. Like we're going to go hiking on a legit Costa Rican mountain and dive into waterfalls and we're going to try to scramble up mudslides and the whole deal. And after this experience, you're going to have to understand that you're changed as a person through this social communication, group dynamic, um, you know, good light environment that you're existing in, authentic human movement, fun, play. You're going to know that that is the proper way for humans to actually exist. Not this new bullshit that we've put ourselves into and this artificial societal thing that we've created over generations and this bizarre Orwellian nightmare in some ways that, that exists, but reality and being present and, and all of that stuff that, that everybody who seems to be bright and on top of things is saying is the right way to exist. So now that's where I am. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm stuck with this firsthand knowledge that my experiential brain has taken in and I'm back in New York City with it. And it's kind of like, what do you do with that? Well, I'm not entirely sure, but, but first of all, you're aware that that's a thing. And um, I, don't, I don't think anybody else in the industry could have actually brought this together the way the Ben did. And, um, and to just talk about like, oh, what did the speakers talk about would be to, to kind of miss the point of it. Um, you know, it was like it's sort of like what we were talking about before with, with your experience at, at Altus before we went online. It's like, how do you summarize it? How do you how do you package that back for somebody? It almost does it a complete disservice to do that. Um, how do you how do you put a value tag on laughing for like eight hours a day and um, and having like legitimate connections with people? It's impossible. But but that's in a way what it was. Like it sounds absolutely amazing, and it's just just for the guys listening. My, my videos aren't so Pat can kind of see me, so you probably saw that I, I like stood up and left the camera for a second. He's like, "Where's he going?" I'm just going to get my notebook because I need to make some notes as I go along here. So just two thoughts that came into my mind there was, you know, you're kind of you speaking on the concept of like, you know, it's kind of hard to verbalize the experience. And one of the best things I ever heard Paul Check say was this concept of the difference between education versus experience. And education is the yeah, you can read it in a book, but experience is like the tangible like emotions and feeling you had at that very moment in time when you were present in that moment. So like the you know, so like the, the actual relationships, as you said, like laughing with other people, exercise with other people, the the untangible things that you can't put into words, like you just can't put into words, you have to feel it. You know, and Paul Chek often talks about he gives the example of like people have these intellectual conversations about training or nutritional protocols. He's like you still really can't give you can't give like a a full sort of detail or you can't even grasp the concept if you actually didn't do it yourself or feel it like so what's it feel like to be on a vegan diet what's it feel like to be on a paleo diet what's it feel like to mm -hmm. do mass that pat davidson did what what so like 
you know, you're talking about like that experience that you had in Costa Rica, my experience at Altus. It, it is funny, you're like, how was it? It's like, you know, it's, you know, it's so hard to like articulate the words because there were certain emotions I was feeling at certain times that I wouldn't be able to put into any sort of tangible words. So that's always going to be a huge part of the equation that that other, that other side of the coin, you know, one way you can verbalize, yeah, the presentation for this, it was that, but, you know, you still had to be, it's like those, you know, those jokes, you, you had to be there, you know, the joke is funny because yeah. there, there was more context to it, there was, there was a feeling and a sense that was around that moment, so that's definitely, I can definitely understand what, what you're trying to articulate there. And just, you I, know, go the, ahead, go, the, go first, ahead. the first presentation I ever did at a, at a retreat that Ben put on was, uh, was a little over a year ago. And I did it on the differences between the left hemisphere of the brain and the right hemisphere. Nice. And, and really the, big, the biggest difference between the two hemispheres is the left brain is a linguistic brain and the right brain is a, a silent brain. It, it doesn't really speak. Um, but it, it certainly – like I think the, the book I took a lot of information away on this topic was the, the, a book called The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of Western Civilization. Um, which is a, a monster of a book. And, but essentially what, it, what the, the idea of it is, is that the two brains are the master and his emissary. And, and it's a story from Nietzsche and that the master is, um, the master was of this wise, you know, this wise master who kind of controlled a domain on earth. And, you know, the, the territory was spreading out, like they were conquering more and more land. And, and everybody that lived under the rule of the master was very happy with the way things were going. Um, but the master was unable to rule all of this new land that they were taking in. So he had to send some emissaries out to various uh, regions so that every part of this new land could be governed in the appropriate way. And one emissary in particular became more and more powerful and more and more full of himself with, with how how well he was governing these new territories. And he had some new ideas that ran contrary to the way that the master was um, primarily focused on how to, how to run things. Mm -hmm. So the emissary ultimately began to believe that the master, master was a fool and went back and ultimately killed the master and took over and then started running things in, in, in much the way of like a totalitarian regime and, Everybody under the control of the emissary was now miserable, and and that's the analogy that Ian McGilchrist used for the title of this book, saying that ultimately the master is the right hemisphere of the brain, and the right hemisphere of the brain, whenever you take in novel information as an organism, the right hemisphere notices it first, and then the information makes its way across the corpus callosum to the left hemisphere. And in the left hemisphere, you're trying to break down this new information and repackage it, put it together in a way that you can verbally explain and wrap your mind around. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's really like what the left hemisphere is supposed to do so that it can send it back, this information back across the corpus callosum to the right hemisphere, which can understand all of the information in totality. So, in, in truth, like I just went to a an incredibly novel environment, um, and everything was was salient and seemed to be like different and important on some level, and and that was my right brain taking that all in, and and the right brain is more associated with emotions, like you sensory information, feeling, mm. and peripersonal spaces is is living in the right brain, um, 
And so I'm probably existing right now, since I, I literally just got back, in a place where all this information is trickling its way across the colossum, and my left brain is beginning to pull it apart. And probably the more times I talk about the experience, the more my left brain will make a story out of it. The story will probably be more and more inaccurate and piecemeal and unable to actually represent the totality of the experience. But if I tell the story enough times, then that it, then it'll re-travel across to the right hemisphere, and I'll have a, a greater picture of the whole thing again. But I would say that, like, uh, from an, you know, like, I, I've definitely heard Boyle talk about the importance of experience, and I think that's where it lives, where you experience things and you, you have a, a feel for them. And then if you have a feel for it long enough, you can start telling people about what it is that you do and see and feel and think on a daily basis. And then, then you begin to understand it at a deeper level. Uh, and then it can go back and you just intuitively understand it at a, at a different place. And, and I also think this speaks to uh, the other book that I think is becoming more and more popular and prevalent within our community, which is Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm. Because, you know, it's, we have this intuitive brain, our system one, that is, it's able to, you know, it can speak very quickly. Like we can just say what you think. And it's really interesting because system one is almost always wrong. Like it, your, your intuition is built on heuristics and you're, you tend to actually answer questions that aren't actually the question posed to you. You're just simply speaking about anything that you know and anything that you you know like right off the bat like uh, versus system two, which is a slow system where you actually have to like logically break things down and work meticulously. And what's interesting about system two is that it's a it's essentially a sympathetic system. Um, you know, in in the, in that book, uh, Kahneman talks about like when you get people to shift over to system two, their pupils dilate, their heartbeat increases, they begin to sweat. I mean, it's all sympathetics. And and nobody likes to go into system two. It's uncomfortable. Like, you don't want to go into sympathetics. But the only way that you can ever really understand something is to slow down to the point where it's excruciating. It's, it's studying. You know what I mean? You encounter novel information and you have to go slow through it. Yeah. And nobody wants to do that. That's why everybody's fucking stupid. Um, and you have to break it down and logically put it together in a way that you you didn't really understand before. And if you're able to do that in a painstaking process, now your system one can be retrained to actually know what the hell it's talking about to some degree about a topic. And now you can just spew information out quickly that's actually correct. So, you know, that's how I learn everything is, is I just sit there and I just get my first coat of paint with the experience. I just, I don't even try. I don't have any, I, I try to just not care almost about what the information is because my system one is just taking it all in. Uh -huh. And there's not enough time. I can't go slow when I'm live and hearing the information the first time. But I know that all of this stuff is going to be recorded, and I know that at some point I'm going to have to go back through it and, like, stop, rewind, listen again, write it all down. And I'm, I hate doing it, but I'm going into System 2, and I'm actually going to learn it 
And if I spend all that time and I go through all that information slow and painstakingly and I write it down and I talk it back to myself, now I'm going to drive it into my brain. It's the same thing as practicing for sports. It's why so few athletes are actually fundamentally sound because they don't want to sit there and drill and take the time and do all that kind of stuff. You know, it's one thing to experience it the first time um, because it's exposing the right brain and the right brain is a very realistic brain. It, it's actually associated with more with depression. People that are quote-unquote right brain dominant tend to be more depressed because reality is fucking depressing in reality. Like it really is. Uh, there's a lot of shit in this world that could make you sad if you sit down and you accurately appraise it versus people that are living in like a system one kind of like left brain. The left brain is just kind of happy. You know what I mean? In some ways, the left brain is a parasympathetic brain. It just, what it sees is what it gets. It's, it's, it will, it will fabricate the truth just to make things fit together in a way that's easy. The right brain is going to be slow. It's going to be meticulous. Unfortunately, it can't verbalize things. So it needs to send it over to the left brain. And if you combine left and right brain activity of a right brain being a sympathetic brain and charging up your system to actually be able to work hard um, while at the same time using the faculties of the left brain to break things apart into piecemeal and, and understand how the pieces fit together. Now you're using the two sides of the brain as they were made to be used. You know, like one thing I can say for sure that I gained from that trip is people don't know what the hell they're talking about with this term mindfulness. They really don't like being mindful is, is like this. I just think of it as like this hippie yoga sort of buzzword that people throw around and it's like feel good central. And, and in reality, mindfulness is being aware, highly, highly aware of reality. And you know, What's the point of that? Well, the point of it is that if you're in a jungle with poisonous animals and rocks that can slide out from under your feet, you're going to die if you're not paying attention. That is mindfulness. Like, that's the reason that it's there. It's to save your ass because the world can be very dangerous. And if you're not paying attention, you're going to be like the ancestors that didn't pass on their DNA. So it's 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 not about, like, kumbaya out in the, you know, it's, it's about being very tuned into reality. And, um, and we had a couple of those experiences, you know, like if you're out in that ocean and those waves are serious and you're not paying attention, you're going to get dumped on your head. You might break your neck. You know, we were out hiking in the jungle on, on some dirt paths and there was a torrential downpour. And I'll tell you, like, like I was legitimately thinking this might be the end of it on this mountain in Costa Rica because I, there it's just mud I'm lateral bear crawling up, grabbing on roots, and if I if I grab a stick that's not a root and it comes away from the ground, I could slide down this whole mountain, and I'm going to go right off the side of this bank, and I'm going to end up in a big, big state of trouble. So, um, you know, I probably touched on about 10 million different topics in a roundabout fashion, but but those are some of the thoughts that I'm that I'm coming away from this with. Um, those are, those are, those are things that I was kind of thinking about on my plane ride back and, and putting together a little bit at a time. Yeah. I'm very similar to how you learn as well in terms of 
like uh, I, I always bring a dictaphone to like every seminar I go to and the reason for that is so that I can just be there and just take it all in and not have to overanalyze the first time around but then I'll go back and then I'll go through the much slower process of really really trying to you know uh, consume and, and digest the information and then trying to understand it so I'd have a very similar process and just in terms of, uh, I think I think we might have touched on this before in our previous podcast, but this idea of right hemisphere to left hemisphere and back, um, and this this concept of creativity, like that, I often um, I often mention Joseph Shilton Pierce in the podcast, and just pulled up one of his books here, the Biology of Transcendence, and in that book he often talks about this thing called uh, Lasky's six steps in action, or, or Las- Lasky's uh, revelations, also called, and it's about these like six concepts of creation and. Basically, it's like the first step is to ask a question, and like you know, it's a, it's a suggestion or an intuitive hunch we have about something, and then the next thing is to search for the answer. So like we we start bringing all this information together, and then step three is you hit a plateau period, you become like disillusioned, and then step four is you give up all hope, but then step mm. step five is breaking through, okay, and and the great thing between four and five is his his whole concept was that like you were so bombarded by information and trying to overanalyze you basically have paralysis by analysis that you weren't open enough to the uh potential answer that was already out there in the ether of the universe to 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 to, you know to to actually link up with uh with your basically he says your right hemisphere he said he he said that the left hemisphere was, was was running too much of the show and like he was like your right hemisphere needed needed the left hemisphere to shut off so that it could open up to the to basically he 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 does it like a like a battery so he's like the universe has the positive charge and your brain has a negative charge but if there's too much chatter or white noise going on from the left hemisphere it doesn't open up the right hemisphere enough to that to that possible uh, signal from the universe so basically he sees the universe as the creative potential and you're the creator so basically like in religious terms like do god's work through you so he would just say you're just t- taking the universe's potential energy and bringing it into some something tangible you know so for a musician that would be music poet poetry uh you know for um uh, researcher it might be some life-saving therapy something like that and so he's like at step four when you give up all hope step five can happen then because it, it was at that time you, you actually let your brain like actually open up yeah to the signal from the universe and then he's like step five then is to translate the answer into common domain so like an example will be special relativity like imagine einstein saying i've got this thing but like you won't understand it because we've got nothing that already exists to explain this it's completely outside of anyone's paradigm so like it's just uh you know it, it's funny that like you you know you spoke about that book and a similar sort of concept and I, i've heard many other great uh professionals in their field of you know expertise you want to call that like you know i often mention jack white the musician and when he spoke about his creative process creative process with songwriting it was very similar to these this six-step process spoken about pierce in his book and i've heard just other people talk about that and you know you just link some things together again like so again this idea of universal energy and some people call that god and that you know universal energy basically is unconditional uh unlimited potential energy and that basically it's always looking for a muse to bring its potential energy into some tangible creation. So again, you know, if, if I'm a musician, I'm going to bring a song into creation that was that has that's never been heard before or was never written. And then the, the the gift that I give to to humankind is that it's up to everyone then to perceive and accept that song any way they want. It's a gift. Like it's, hmm. there's no right or wrong with like no, this is what the song means. That's what the song means. The song's now yours. I, I I the songwriter don't own it. I never owned it. I just I just brought it into creation. I was the filter. 
I was the, the, the muse between the universe and actual tangible creation. I just brought it into creation. Same then with a with a chef with a, with a great meal. Like so, I'm, I'm I watched all, all that series on Netflix, but like you know the the master chefs and all that, and that's just their way of expressing mastery and and, and creativity. And then obviously with a painter, it's a painting, and then paintings are always up to the person's perception. Some people like a painting, some people don't. Some people say I think it means this, it means that. And then you know, and then it's the same with us in terms of finding our like for us as as coaches, you know. So like. I mean, our we would like to think that our our, our meaning here is is to lead and, and to help inspire and empower people to take more control of their lives through the means of exercise and and, and fitness and nutrition and lifestyle uh, habits and, and changing certain behavioral behavioral strategies. So we're we're just using you know fitness as our means to drive our meaning and by empowering other people. So it's uh it's it's just interesting to hear like you know you heard that from that book and that's been going on in your mind. So it was just something I wanted to add in there. So I, you know, I'm, I'm friends with Michael Marlin, who's a um, a big PRI guy. And yeah, yeah, I know Michael Marlin. I know of him, and I've contacted him a few times. He, he did a lot of uh, talks at Boyles. Yeah, and I'll tell you, Michael Marlin's one of the best people you'll ever meet in your life. Like, what a great guy. And um, you can't, I, you know, I could I could go on for half an hour about how much I like Michael Marlin and all the superlatives about the guy. That, but uh, he he recently mailed me a book called Leonardo's Brain, which I got a chance to read. And, wow. That's a, that is a great book, okay? It's like, it's well-written, and uh, it's incredibly entertaining, but it's packed with, with tremendously interesting and, and useful information as well. I'd say the central premise of the book is that Leonardo da Vinci is probably the only person who would have been able to win a Nobel Prize in art and science simultaneously mm. that's ever lived. Mm. No one else could lay claim to that. Um, and it's... Like when you like the book details the accomplishments of Leonardo da Vinci, and it's kind of like there's no way that one person could have done all of this stuff. You know, like he he revolutionized painting and perspective and more than anyone has ever in the history of art. And he also invented like thousands of things, including a submarine and a helicopter at a time where it would have been impossible for someone to do that. And he also created maps of different regions of Italy and, and other parts of the world that would have been impossible for someone to do at that time. Like he created topographical maps of parts of Italy that would have only been possible. Like you would have had to have been in a helicopter. Like I, I can't remember how many miles above the ground to gain the perspective, to accurately depict the areas that he drew in perfect depiction from that level. I think it was talking like you'd have to have a view from seven miles above the earth straight down to be able to actually see what he managed to, to depict. Mm -hmm. So the book is sort of like written by a neuroscientist on like how could it be possible for someone to actually possess the brain that da Vinci had and and how is it possible that he actually did some of the things like the accurate portrayal of these maps? Because the, the, the next time in history when a map like that actually could have been made was Google Maps from satellite. That's the next time where anything has been as accurate as the Da Vinci maps of the regions that he portrayed. Mm -hmm. So the, the theory is that, uh, number one, we kind of know that Da Vinci was a gay man and that he was left-handed but also operated in many things ambidextrously. Uh, so what do we, we kind of know about brains of different kinds of people? Well, 
We know that uh, we have a corpus callosum that, that connects the left and the right hemisphere and essentially shares information back and forth and lets them work together. Now, the population on Earth with the, the worst connected corpus callosum is straight right-handed males. All right, so we're like kind of the least creative people in the world. We're the most boring, uh, and, and we're generally like the most left hemispheric dominant individuals possible. Fuck like, it. Yeah, we're, we're not real good at feeling our emotions or being able to verbalize our emotions. We suck at it. We're the worst. And then the, the I think it's like this sliding scale where it's kind of like uh, straight right-handed women are next, and then you get into like, left-handed males, left-handed females, and then you go into like uh, like homosexual right-handed uh, males, or homosexual right-handed females, homosexual right-handed males, left-handed homosexual females, and left-handed homosexual males have the greatest amount of connectivity between the two sides of the brain. And if you wanted to pick out the, the people that are the most potentially creative on earth, it would be the, the they would have an advantage as left-handed homosexual males as being those people. And it's like kind of no surprise that it's like, you know, worlds of art are sort of fashion, all of these things that like most right-handed males, just straight, straight males just have no clue about are dominated by the exact opposite. These left-handed uh, homosexual males, like, but Da Vinci was more interesting because he was incredibly masculine at the same time and, like, apparently had, like, his physical capabilities and prowess are, like, legendary. He was able to pull off, like, bizarre feats of strength and, like, was incredibly athletic and did all of these daring, incredible things. So he was, like, a total badass at the same time. So, like, no one's fully able to, like, wrap their minds around, like, how could this guy be as he? He essentially invented science, is what it was also saying. Like, it's it's sort of a toss-up between who was the first scientist, Da Vinci or, or Galileo, and um, and and this would say that Da Vinci kind of came first and gave us the groundwork for the empirical method. So he would have been the first true scientist that you could have really pointed your finger at. So the guy invented science. So you have to be very analytical and all that kind of stuff. But you know, it's it's like. How the hell could he have drawn those maps was really the end question. Like, there's nobody that could have done that. How did he do it? And, and I know that we previously had a conversation about the book The Field by Lynn Taggart, yeah. Lynn McTaggart. And, and, you know, she kind of details Hal Putoff, who was a nuclear physicist in that book, who ran all the experiments on extrasensory perception. And, um, and, and the, the theory, and this is a, you know, this Leonardo's, like, I get a little bit weary talking about things like extrasensory perception, but these were legitimate studies that were run by the CIA, and they yeah. ran tons of them, and they did find that you had people that they called viewers who were able to accurately explain what, like, they would give you, they would give these guys, like, latitudinal and longitudinal coordinates and ask them to describe what existed at these random latitudinal and longitudinal, longitudinal coordinates. And essentially, like, there were, like, secret military bases that existed at these things. And these guys that had no security access were able to accurately describe exactly what existed at these places. And um, the thought is that da Vinci had the same ability. 
So he could actually remotely view things through some ability that we can't explain the mechanisms of scientifically, but has been kind of teased out as something that actually exists through high-level empirical studies conducted by physicists, that we kind of know that this is something that, that certain individuals have the ability to do. Yeah, it's funny, uh, it's funny you mention that because there was, I can't remember the exact documentary, but in the documentary they were saying that during the Carter administration they brought a viewer in and they were looking for some sort of Soviet plane that had crashed somewhere, it, this was in the late 70s, and that the person like gave the exact coordinates of where the crash plane was and everyone was just like, okay, this is fucking freaky. Yeah, so I mean, they've done that and it's, it's peer-reviewed scientific papers that exist. Like, I haven't read these things, but... You know, like at a certain point, it's kind of like I don't, I don't, you know, I, I feel like I'm a pretty standard, like I'm a right-handed straight man. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm not great with corpus callosum connectivity, and I'm not great with creativity and truth, and and I don't want those things to kind of be true because it sort of is difficult to explain. But hey, if it's peer-reviewed and there's like hundreds of papers on it, uh, like it seems to be a thing. Yeah, um, yeah. So. Look, it, it's, it is a situation where if you don't trust your intuition, you're missing out on a big, big part of what it is to be a high-functioning person. Yeah, and if you're, a, if you're a typical coach, you know, like what, probably 96, 97% of the people that work in the field that we do are going to fit into this least creative, least receptive demographic that I'm describing here. Okay, and and that means that you're cutting yourself off from a lot of good stuff out there. So kind of kind of go with the flow from time to time. Do the opposite of what you think everything is telling you to do, and you might just find some gold in that in that place. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's some good stuff there. I was just about to say as well that this concept too of you know right versus left brain. I mean, if you hear stories of Einstein, and they often said he'd have these like daydreams called thought experiments. And then, you know, I was lucky enough to meet up with a uh, coach, Jay, Jay Schroeder in Arizona, and he said that a lot of the co training concepts that he developed were through through dreams and daydreaming. And if you kind of think what like a, what 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 sleeping forces us to do, it forces us to get out of reality, forces us to get out of left brain and let that right brain right brain be really creative. And it's funny that that seems to happen a lot with creativity. That that it's about like allowing this right brain to be open to the field, if you like, if that's what, you know, as the MacTaggart would call it. And maybe that's how this concept of remote viewing is, is able to happen, that these individuals are just able to be more open to that frequency and those vibrations and, you know, again, the field, so that they can bring that into some sort of tangible um, tangible being, like, you know, that they, they can actually give things like coordinates on, on where a certain building or wh whatever is, but in terms of the Leonardo's ability for remote viewing, like that could be it too. And like the amount of times people have breakthroughs when, when you know, it was true dream or daydreaming, you go back to Einstein. And then obviously talking with Shield and Pierce earlier on and those, that six-step process and last week's revelation, it was the same concept that when you finally let your brain like just be empty and, and let the left brain shut off and not have paralysis by analysis, you were finally open to the, the frequencies and vibrations of the universe to take in the answer. So it's just it's you know it's, it's like it's a lot of the same concepts said slightly differently for yeah. everyone and it's just very very interesting and just something I want to ask you then is like I had Jane Smith on the podcast this time last week and I'll have that podcast up soon and it'll be up before this so the listeners might have already listened to it but 
on that like we kind of spoke of this balance between like your intuition and this and like you know your your sort of more analytical side of your brain and this this balance between being you know purely subjective versus purely objective and you know for instance like you know i suppose what, what kind of comes to my mind is the bay, not the bay of pigs the uh, cuban missile crisis with, with john f kennedy where like he had all these generals and everyone in the room just going purely by their emotions and kennedy was able not to get emotional he was able to step outside and stay objective and you know you get some people saying oh you should go to a good feeling sometimes it's kind of like, uh, like you know have you ever meditated on like where is that balance between like you know being very much with gut feeling versus you know sometimes it is also a skill and a great ability to be able to step back and be more objective too you know i'll tell you i think that that's where thinking fast and slow comes in just slaps you right in the face yeah, yeah. because to, to put it very simply if you're uneducated and you're kind of a dimwit your intuition is going to be wrong Okay. Yeah. If you if you have spent significant time, if you have collected your quality ten thousand hours mm -hmm. in an area, now your intuition will be right. Yes. And your intuition will be unbelievably powerful. But intuition is both your biggest enemy and your biggest friend. Yeah. It's just a question of whether or not you actually truly have mastery of a topic. And most people, from my experience, don't have mastery of anything. Yeah. They're, they're, they're just sort of like people that are there for the ride and they haven't really spent time reading. They haven't done their, their, their due diligence um, it, it, to, really, to really own something. And I don't know that many topics. Like I'm, I'm really rather a person that lacks breadth in many ways. Uh, but the things that I know, I'm, I'm going to trust my intuition on. Like if it involves training, I'm going to trust my intuition because I've read the books. I've talked to the experts. I've trained. I've lived it. Um, you know, it's just a question of being honest with yourself and your intuitive brain uh, in many ways will lie to you because it wants to prevent you from going sympathetic. Uh, it wants to prevent you from actually noticing novelty and reality because it's too much work. Yeah. So you have to you have to be skeptical of your intuition because it's going to jump in there really fast and it's going to probably drive like it, and it is going to be an emotional thing like those emotional reactions are just quick dirty and easy and you'll be able to like in your own in your own internal logic loop be able to rationalize that decision to yourself but the true thinker the true expert is able to acknowledge their emotional involvement, become, become aware of it, and, and then be able to step outside of that. And, um, you know, I, I, think, I think that it's, it's probably good to, like, to transition topics at, at, at this point. And, and I think that you brought up the thing that, that allows me to do that with, with this idea of dreaming and, uh, and, and what that really is all about because, you know, I definitely want to talk in the time we have left about some of the neurotransmitter related stuff Absolutely. and, and, and like what's involved with that. And, and, you know, I don't want to do a complete double version of, of what I talked with Derek about, but, um, you know, whenever you start, you, you get into this topic of neurotransmitters and fatigue and, and fatigue sort of lives in these two different realms of like chronic fatigue syndrome and acute 
fatigue that you would experience from performing mechanical work. Um, and, and that's really like the paper that I wrote breaks down the similarities and differences. But in both conditions, you're going to be dealing with a situation where we have specific neurotransmitter concentrations that are elevated or depressed that would be able to identify for you that this person is, is very likely a fatigued individual. Um, and, and then you get into like, well, what do I do about this? You know, that, that's kind of like first identifying the basic sciences and the, the, the concentration levels and, and that they probably mean this or that regarding fatigue. And then how do I reduce fatigue is the question. And, and it really leads you to like sleep science as, as the big one. And, um, and, and I really encourage everybody, there, there is an audio book on Audible called The Secrets of Sleep Science uh, by Craig Heller, who's a PhD, and it's, it's from the Great Courses series, and it's the best of all of the Great Courses series lectures that I've listened to. And, and this man has, he went into such a level of depth on this topic that it's, in my mind, unrivaled in, in the topics that I've really gone into and listened to, and, and like, I've only listened to it once, and I, I need to go back through it slowly and literally write down every word that he says in this thing. So I can I can attack this thing through system two processing. Yeah. Um, but it, it's kind of like the thing that we understand probably the least about physiology of the human is the physiology of sleep. Oh, and and just the fact that like the fact that we go offline and become completely unaware of the external environment, which is the most most dangerous thing you could possibly do yeah. um, for like you know, a big percentage of our lives is indicative of the importance of sleep. And, and, and the fact that we go horizontal and get out of the gravitational field, I find that weird as well. Yeah. And it, it's crazy. And, and, you know, almost every creature on Earth goes into either rest or sleep of some kind. Even birds that are flying, like, dolphins will sleep with half of their brain at a time. So they'll exist with, like, one eye... In interacting with the world while the other eye and brain is, is off and sleeping. And, um, I mean, there's so many weird things about sleep, like hibernation patterns are bizarre and, and you know, what, what is circadian rhythm and what is actually like, uh, just other neuronal regions that are switching on and off is, is incredibly interesting stuff. And I could not possibly at this point in time do, do a discussion on this topic, any kind of justice because of the complexity of it. But what I would say is that, you know, dreaming is, is an incredibly interesting area. And, and basically, like, Freud was kind of wrong about what dreams mean. Like, we, we, they don't really mean anything as far as we can tell. Um, but it's, it's sort of like you dream during REM sleep. And the question is, well, why do you go into REM sleep? And the answer for that seems to be that REM sleep allows for, like, the more time that you exist in wakefulness, you need to go into REM sleep to correct for that uh, physiological, like, the, the whatever you're accumulating or losing during wakefulness, you need to recoup or reduce during REM sleep. Yeah. You recover from wakefulness due to the time that you spend in REM sleep. Yeah. And then the question is, why do you go into non-REM sleep? Because whatever you're losing or gaining in excess during REM sleep, you need to account for during 
non-REM sleep. You need to recover from REM sleep by going into non-REM sleep. And it's kind of like you need to stay asleep for the longest period of time possible without waking to be able to have the long cycles of REM to recover from wakefulness and non-REM to recover from REM. It's, it's as bizarre as you could possibly get. You know what I mean? Um, and you, you're going to dream during REM sleep. And dreaming is, believe it or not, a left brain-based phenomenon. Wow. Um, and, and the reason that it, that it is that is because if you look at what a right brain does versus what a left brain does, a right brain is concerned with peripersonal space and it's concerned with um, vibration, touch, and um, and in, in general, it's it's a more vestibular brain. Um, it, it's it's there to really integrate and figure out your sensory information. It's a sensory brain. Um, the left brain, and from a neurotransmitter standpoint, the right brain is a serotonin brain and a uh, norepinephrine brain. So it's a sympathetic brain. Uh, you need sympathetics to notice novelty in your environment, and and that novelty is stuff that you'll pick up through sense information. Uh, whereas the left brain is really more your your analytical brain, I suppose is is probably the right right word, but it's a dopamine rich hemisphere. And dopamine, what it primarily does is it it draws associations between things. It makes connections for you. And, you know, when, when dopamine is working well, you're able to put things together and connect the dots, so to speak, and, and you're able to make these large intuitive jumps. Um, but it, it also is kind of like, it, it, it will, it's associated with schizophrenia in many, it, like it, excess dopamine is a schizophrenic brain and dreaming is the time where you're going to completely cut off afferent flow back to the brain from the body. So you shut down all sensory input back to the brain. It's kind of like existing in a sensory deprivation chamber. Uh, and what that does is the right brain can't function at a high level because sensory information is dropped off, which inhibits the left brain to be able to function at a level that it normally can't. So you go into these super high dopamine levels and you start trying to make sense of a senseless world because your ability to make sense of things is based on your ability to have a body sending information up to a brain. So you have a mind unconstrained, and, and that's what dreams are. They're just a dopamine-rich environment that's trying to make associations from a lack of information, which leads you to hallucinate because you're trying to have some form of reality present in a non-realistic world. Uh, and yeah, that, that removal of gravity, the, the perceptive brain, the, like probably 90% of what its activity is, is trying to make sense of a gravitational field. That's the most important variable to solve, to be able to survive and exist in this world is, uh, solving gravity. Uh, and you don't have to do that when you're horizontal with the ground, you, you're removing that from, from the factors involved with, with brain solving. Which, which side of the brain you said it was? Uh, well, the right brain is trying to solve sensory information. Yeah. And gravity is the primary sense. You have to have a sense of gravity 
solving that to be able to function in the world. You don't have to function in the world while you're asleep. So you don't need any sense. And that removal of sensory information is what prevents you from having motor responses during sleep so that you don't physically act out your dreams because that could be very dangerous to do. Yeah, there, uh, there, there's certain disorders in that. Like you've heard of, I don't know, I've heard like stories of where like someone killed a baby, but they were like, yeah. sleep, they were in their sleep. Yep. Yeah, there's a couple examples of that. I think that's in the, the book, The Power of Habit details that. Like a couple of criminal cases where a man murdered his wife while he was asleep. And, um, you know, is this guy guilty of murder or not? Um, because he was physically acting out a dream where someone had broken into his house in the dream and it, you know, he physically acted it out and killed his wife thinking he was killing the person in his dream who broke into his house. Um, it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. It's, um, but it's ultimately like sleep is the time where you're going to restore the ATP concentrations in the brain. Like they kind of think that's probably one of the, the really big hitter points of sleep is that you're, you're restoring ATP balance so that you're, you're essentially energizing your brain. Like that's the only time where you can do it. Uh, you know, we know that as adenosine levels rise, you're going to feel more and more fatigued. Like that's, that's one thing we can point our finger to and say like, it seems as though the concentration of adenosine is a primary driver of feeling tired. And it's kind of like uh, one of the easiest ways to wrap your mind around that is that the primary action of caffeine is that it, it blocks the binding of adenosine to adenosine receptors in the brain so that you remove the feeling of fatigue as a result of, con- of consumption of caffeine. I was, ju- I was just um, about to ask you what, what caffeine brought is that because I know it, it had something to do with the receptor for adenosine. Yeah. So it's kind of like while you're asleep, you're rebinding the phosphates to adenosine so that you don't have free adenosine floating around in the brain binding to receptors and you wake up with a greater feeling of uh, non-fatigue in many ways. It's not so much that you are awake, it's that you are not as fatigued because of the adenosine concentrations. Um, And the the other piece seems to be like uh, another book that, like, I kind of know what I'm going to do for, like, the next big project presentation I'm going to do. Like, I'm going to break down a few books. Um, There's a book called On Intelligence by Jeff Hawkins, which is just a monster of a book uh, regarding the way that the cortex functions. And there's another book called The Other Brain, which is just an analysis of glia. You know, we always think about neurons, and glia seem to be the part of the brain that we never talk about. Like, if you have brain cancer, it's never the neurons that have cancer. It's always the glia. Um, When we talk about sleep, it is the time where the glia are, are primarily becoming active because the role that glia play is that they, so I've got neurons that are communicating with one another and one neuron releases a neurotransmitter that floats across the synaptic cleft and binds to the next neurotransmitter. But, but sometimes those neurotransmitters stay in the cleft. They're not binding. They're not going anywhere. And it's the glia that are essentially like sponges that soak up the, the excess uh, neurotransmitter in the synapse. And while you know, if I'm trying to have neurotransmitter communication between neurons, 
like neurons are limited in the neurons that they can talk to. It's sort of like they speak to their adjacent neurons that have uh, dendrites connected with their axons versus glia that are able to actually like almost like carpet bomb the brain with neurotransmitters. They can, they can, they can bind with neurotransmitters and they can also release neurotransmitters. There you go. The other brain. <laughs> Um, well, at least, at least we're on the same page, but it's kind of like sleep seems to be the time where you're able to reset your neurotransmitter balance because it's the time where the glia start really becoming more and more active. Like sleep is the domain of the glia. Wakefulness is the time of the neuro, the, the, the neuron. Um, you know, it, we're, we're really way behind in terms of realizing the importance of the glia. Because almost like all neuroscientists have been neuron obsessed and the glia might be a more powerful system to actually act on than the, the neuron. They're, they're the protectors of the neurons. They actually contain the immune system of the brain. Yeah. You know, we have that blood brain barrier, but microorganisms get inside the brain and it's the glia that act as the internal immune system of the brain that have to deal with all those microorganisms um, they, specifically. They used to just think the glia was like just some type of scaffolding that like held sort of like yeah. neural structure in place. But isn't like, like, do you know the percentage? I remember Eric Goddard said, is it, is it like 95 yeah. or 7% is all glial and only like, you know, like two to 4% is actually only neuronal bodies. Like the rest is like all glia. Yeah. That's, that's about the numbers that I'm aware of. Yeah. And the other thing is like, you know, they actually analyzed, there was that crazy guy that, that stole Einstein's brain and like had it in his car for like a decade and like finally started selling the brain back to the legitimate neuroscientist. Like the guy that did the autopsy on Einstein, like stole his brain. It's a super interesting story. But um, he uh, he started selling uh, little bits and pieces of it back to, to other neuroscientists that could research it. And um, so we're, we're still like, just beginning to actually study Einstein's brain and what makes it different. And he has like, there's no difference in the neurons, but Einstein had twice as much glia as a normal brain. So it's kind of like when we're studying what, what is the difference in intelligence between different people? It's probably the glia and it's probably also the levels of dopamine that you can secrete. That's, that's from uh, Previk's book, the dopaminergic mind and the history of, of human evolution. But Amazing. I'll tell you, glia is the time, is, is the, the ruler of sleep, it seems like. And glia set your brain up to do what the brain does. And, and, and that's, that's primarily what we're establishing. And, you know, we're always interested in motor, but uh, to me, it's kind of like your great athletes are going to be your motor specialists anyways. And, and, and what I was kind of talking with Derek about in, in, in that podcast is that, you know, we, we like to bicker in our fields about different ways of training people and different corrective exercise strategies, this, that, and the other thing. You'd like that book. Why? Okay, I'll, I'll check that one out. I'll tell you that's, about it at the end. That's probably glia-related, I would imagine. It's, it's more to do with how to optimize brain health through functional medicine. Um, just for the listeners, I just showed uh, Pat the Why Isn't My Brain Working, the, the Tease Karazian book. So, that, but that you'd find that very interesting. I think it's a monster. I'll definitely check that it's out. It's a monster too. Look at it. Oh uh, yeah, it's thin print too. Yeah. But um, you know, like what I was talking about with Derek is we we uh 
we, we're all bickering about like you know what's the most optimal way to train uh, these these elite athletes and and it's kind of like I'm, I'm again like being skeptical like does your sophisticated training model really matter or did you just get a guy that is genetically better than everybody else for this this thing like I could have probably trained Michael Jordan any old way that made some level of sense that wasn't completely idiotic yeah. and he would have dominated like same thing with LeBron like I don't know what LeBron does for training but I'm sure if we as a community of like these you know overly intellectual strength coaches saw LeBron's training and we would be able to pick apart like a million things that are wrong with this protocol but he's LeBron James and he's going to dominate the NBA like just get him out there and he'll he'll be himself like no coach is responsible for that just don't hurt the person and keep them in shape that's all you have to do and, how, and, how, how much do you think then like belief in, in, in a certain entity and then I suppose placebo because even if you're looking now at pain science and you've looked at this more than me and, and Bill Harper could speak to it better and any of the guys that have looked into the work of the Noi group the, the Australians but I've had this conversation with Tommy Brennan who's a, who's you know a very good physiotherapist here in Ireland and like the more we speak and the more we talk about like just you know bringing people back to a more functional state in terms of pain free and then in terms of if we're if we're talking about athletes' performance, like so much it seems to be just their belief in what they're actually doing. Because again, you could pick apart the rehab program that you would yep. give just just as much as you could pick apart a, a a strength conditioner or physical preparation program, but yet like it's still producing results. And kind of like the the point I'm getting to is like myself and Tommy would say like you know maybe when we were younger in the in the in the profession in terms of the training profession rehab profession we we might scoff at a, at a at a, at a, you know, oh look, leg extensions in that, or, or like, you, you know, like, you know, just, just, yep. use, just using that as an example. But it's like, yep. but, but, but the person got really, really, like, really great results off that. And, and well, then, and then, and absolutely, then, just cut to the answer that I gave Derek. Yeah. All that matters is that the person believes in the thing, and <laughs> the way that you get someone to believe in something is that you actually know a tremendous amount about it, and that, like, the more that you know about something, demonstrates that the more that you care about something and that comes across to people. That's the importance of learning all this stuff is because you're going to care more and then you're able to explain it better. And the better I explain it to you, the more you're like, Oh my God, this person thought of every possible angle of detail. This is the ticket and you're going to get bigger buy-in. And every time that person has a question about something, you have an answer and then they feel more and more comfortable with you. And then they try harder. It's about trying hard. And like, I'm not, look, I'm not going to try hard for someone unless I feel like they have a pretty good explanation for something. And the more you explain something to me and the more that I sense there's a reason for why I'm doing this, the harder I'm going to try. You, you know, something I just want, because what's, what's kind of sparked in my mind from that answer there is that, that, you know, the person could explain it. And I think the person could explain it or, or, could, could could give a deep explanation for something because they really 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 went through a mastery process yeah. and and just just to your question that we had offline so pat, pat just asked me and i'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar that i spent three months at at, uh, at altus in phoenix arizona and you know i'm often getting the question well how was the experience how was the experience it was, and it was fantastic you know it, it was fantastic overall um without question and i will do a podcast on it at some stage to, you know just to get my thoughts out 
and even and, and write about it. But one one huge thing, Pat, that 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 I've really that's just I'm not messing. This thing is coming up again and again and again and again, and it's this concept of delayed gratification. Okay. Yes. People people mightn't say it, but when they're speaking, it's what they're talking about. And you said earlier on, you said people's intuitions are shit because <laughs> because because they, they they're lazy and they haven't put in that that quality. 10,000 hours, okay, and, okay, so, just so, like, no one takes that, like, you know, someone's going to come, well, 10 hours is a load of shit, well, we still, we can agree that there is some process of mastery, right, whether it's fucking 50,000 hours or whatever, but there's a process of mastery that has to go on, and, and basically, mastery is delayed gratification, and, and because, as well, today, you've spoken about, you like to take things in, at, at, you know, just, just take them in at first, and not really overthink about it, overanalyze it, then you'll go back and do the slow grind to really understand it, and it's so funny, because, that's where I'm at right now. And when I'm about to show Pat here is like my latest book that I'm just literally like tipping through. And it's so funny because every time I'm reading it, it's like this is putting links of things together. And it's just that. Pr- Principles of Anatomy and Physiology. <laughs> That's what I'm reading right now. I look at, and I'm going I'm to read that book this year. Like I plan to have that book finished by Christmas. because, And I say Christmas because like I'm only on page 53, but I'm reading two or three pages every day. And it's just linking everything together. Like it's making me understand proteins better and the skeletal system and the immune system. Because I already know these little bits. But it's it's to be able to delay gratification. It's just it's no different than like when you're saving money. It's like, okay, I know at the end of the year I'll have twenty grand in the bank, but I won't have that for another ten months. I still gotta put my grind in on what I'm doing right now. It's the same thing with this regards to knowledge. I can you know, just the ability to, to delay gratification. I think it's because we're in such a social media you know, lifestyle right now, and everything is like instant, 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 instant likes, yeah. instant little hearts, instant little emoji pictures. That it's, it can be tough to remove yourself, like, and, and like put out, like, here's a four year plan, or you know, here's a plan. And then what happens is you get into procrastination mode because you, you said another great thing actually, and it was this you were like, uh, people just want quick, dirty, and easy. And that's what it is. Like, you know, you know when you talk to some people and you're like, what's the meaning of life? And then they just don't want to talk. They don't want to think about it because it's too tough to think about. Yeah. And they just, they just then like want to just do something quick, dirty and easy. Go on Facebook, watch TV. And it's just this, this procrastination. It's, it's resistance as uh, Stephen Pressfield will call it. But it's, it's just some things like this. This is why I, I get these, like get guys like you on the show and Jane Smith, because I always get these like little, just things that click in my head. And it's just, it's just, that's what came into my mind there, this idea of delayed gratification, you know. And and so, just before I let you talk there, the procrastination yeah. thing, I, I made a note here, procrastination, and I wrote the coping mechanism because it's easy. And then underneath I wrote, it's because it's keeping you from going sympathetic, which you said earlier. Remember you were saying the brain, it doesn't like you to go sympathetic. It doesn't want you to have to overwork. It thinks like it's a survival thing. Whereas like to really get something, to really create something and something, you got to push yourself there. you got to overcome that resistance. And personally, as, as an individual myself, I think procrastination is my biggest issue. So, and when I tell people that, they're like, "You really procrastinate?" Because my my strength is is reading and retaining information. What I'm not good at is problem solving, and I hide from that. Then, so like statistics, yeah. like statistics, I'm really like, oh, you know. Whereas, like, I love reading physiology because it's just learning about it and retaining it, and then be, but then being able to explain it, I can do that. But then, like, it's just it's funny that it's just it's, it's clicked a few things in my head there. So. Just that's what I wanted. I wanted to say that and get that out there. It was great. You know, it's um, it's funny because so many of these things are going back to that first presentation I did with uh with Ben House because that presentation again was was on um the two sides of the of the the hemispheres and um and it was kind of like 
I, I look at the left brain, and I the part of the presentation that dealt with the left hemisphere, it was a dopamine, it's a dopamine hemisphere, and, and I just called it the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm. You know, it's one of my favorite movies, and, and, um, and it's, it's whenever people ask me about CrossFit, I always answer it with that topic as well, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because yeah, there's... All, all of that exists within it, and the same thing with the left hemisphere of the brain, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and it's kind of like the dopamine has all of those things. Like the ugly in my mind with, with the left brain is, is mental illness and, um, you know, schizophrenia, ADD, autism, um, OCD, all of those things are dopamine concentration disorders. Uh, but the, the good of the left brain is the delayed gratification component, and it's kind of like uh, it's it's hard to summarize very very quickly, but I'll do my best here. The the highest dopamine amongst us are rewarded in the cu the current society that we have, because the only way that you're ever actually going to be rewarded is is a couple of things. Generally speaking, like you're going to have to make your way through grade school, you're going to have to make your way through college. You're probably going to have to make it through grad school. And then you're going to have to start a difficult job where you're going to have to be like the workhorse for at least the first five to seven years, generally speaking. You know, you think about like uh, being a lawyer, like, you know, you, you had to go to school, grad school, pass the bar, and then you have to work like a dog to try to become a partner. And if you do all that, you get a reward at the end. All right. And there's no way that you're going to do that without having, like, grinded. And and I think the, the best book to illustrate the uh, methodology is Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, which is, is phenomenal on the topic. And it, it details, like, the kids that go to West Point that make it through the selection process versus the ones that don't. And, and they all, like, the common denominator is grit. And, and grit she defines as the combination of passion and persistence. And so you have to have both of those things in order to be able to display grit. And and it's the persistence that gets most people. You know, it's like you just have to keep showing up and things aren't always going to be good. The persistence is really driven through the ability to deal with failure well. Um, because you're going to fail over and over again, but failing is the only way that you actually learn new things in some ways, if you can deal with it. You can crumble and go into a shell, or you can fail, and you can take the time and delay that gratification and analyze why you failed. And if you can change that, then you'll be able to ultimately go on and get better, and you'll reach levels that people thought were impossible ultimately. Like, how did I get here? I can't even believe I'm here. Well, it took you a long time. You were persistent to get there, and you learned from your mistakes. And... and Look, like, the point of having dopamine, as far as we can tell, on a most basic level, is, number one, it, it seems to be associated with hunting, okay? Like, if you're going to be a, a persistence hunter, as we are as, as organisms, it seems, we're scavengers and persistence hunters, you're going to have to run for a long time. And that's unpleasant. Mm. And you're going to have to deal with heat dissipation, which is unpleasant. And tissues being uncomfortable. It's all unpleasant stuff. And But the thing is, is if you keep your eye on the prize, you might get that thing. You know, you're just going to have to work for it. Uh, and 
those who are able to withstand the greatest amount of uncomfortable ultimately can potentially get the greatest prize at the end. You just have to be patient. You have to wait. You have to be smart. You have to be a critical thinker. Uh, and, and it seems as though like we've actually set up our society based on that same persistence hunting model. We're just hunting these more abstract concepts now, like currency and prestige and intellectual prowess. But you're not going to get any of those things unless you live through this delayed gratification dopamine model. The highest concentrations of dopamine are secreted when you can delay gratification and ultimately strive towards an abstract, distant goal. And abstraction and distance are the primary variables that we associate with dopamine. The more abstract the goal, the more dopaminergic the thing is. Again, it's associations. Like, I can associate money with a reward even though money's not real. You know, like that's, that's kind of where this is going um, in terms of a discussion. But my athletes who are able to have these abstract goals, like I want to win a Super Bowl. You know, I'm a, I'm a rookie in, in the NFL and my goal is to win a Super Bowl. Like that's not present. It's not in the here and now. It's this very far away goal. And, but you have to break it down. Like, like Duckworth in, in Grit says that you have to have your, your primary goal. And if you know, it should only be one thing. Like there's so many people that want to do a million things, and that's a bad idea in many ways. Pick one thing that you want as your primary goal, and um, and from there you have you have secondary goals, which are going to be direct behaviors that feed into of getting that primary goal, and then you have tertiary behaviors that feed into the secondary behavior the feed into the primary behavior. The, the easiest one I think is, and it's easy for athletes. Like for me at a certain point in time, my primary goal in life was to try to win a world championship in strongman. And it's kind of like, well, how am I going to do this? I, I need to, you know, be better at these specific events than everybody else. Uh, so I'm going to have to train these events, but in order to be able to actually compete, I have to get my body weight to 175 pounds. Uh, which means that I have to, you know, eat in a very specific way. It means that I have to wake up at a very specific time. It means that, like all of my behaviors ultimately had a reason for doing them. And most of them were unpleasant. Like I'm, I know that I'm going to be hungry for about the next two months, but I'm okay with it because I've got this big picture goal. Uh, I've got this delayed gratification that I'm willing to exist in because of how badly I want this very abstract, very strange goal that's looming out in front of me. And I'm going to go and hunt for this thing from a persistent standpoint. And the highest achievers amongst us are the ones who are able to most closely define their goal, their primary goal that they want to get. And they're able to construct all of their behaviors in life to systematically and hierarchically feed towards achieving this one exact goal. And I'll tell you, like, it is delayed gratification, but nothing feels better in the entire world than when you are right there at achieving this, this impossible dream that you set out for yourself. Uh, and, and the longer it took 
And the harder the, the march and the climb, the greater the reward there is for it. And those are the things that you'll remember for the rest of your life and that shape you as a person more than anything else. And, and those of us who can't get off the instant gratification drip have no idea what it really means to exist as, as far into the beauty of the left hemisphere as you possibly can. Uh, because that thing is there for a reason. And, and your whole nucleus accumbens reward system is set up in a way that, that it will guide you through life. And if you want the biggest reward possible, you, you need to delay that gratification as long as you possibly can. Um, because there's nothing else that will compare to it. I think, you know, something you brought up there in that answer, in that, in that part of the conversation was, you know, this idea of um, failure and setbacks. And I had this conversation, too, with James Smith, and it's like, whether consciously or unconsciously, we're conditioned to see failure as something negative. Whereas if you look at anybody who's ever achieved anything worth achieving, they've always seen obstacles as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, they've, they, they, so it's, there's that old saying, and I'm paraphrasing that it's not the exact same, but it's like, the obstacle doesn't block the way, the obstacle is the way. Um, and, you know, there's, there's another uh, Shakespeare quote that I love. It's like, uh, nothing, uh, or, uh, and again, I'm paraphrasing, it's not exactly word for it, but it's like, n nothing is either good or bad, only only thinking makes it so. So, again, it comes down to your perception of reality. You know, you, mm -hmm. can, you, you, can, pres you can present the, you can present two people with the exact same environmental conditions and, one will see this environment position as something negative, while the other person sees it as a positive. So I think it's it's just it's just trying to it's trying to instill into our own subconscious belief systems that constructive criticism, uh, you know, negative feedback, whatever whatever wording you want to put on it is 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 absolutely a positive thing if seen so if seen in that light or if perceived to be. Because again, they're they're just feedback. All it is is just feedback to point you more along the correct path. I mean, uh, with James, actually, I, I spoke about evolution. I was like, right, you look at our brain structure. We start off reptilian brain, and then evolution turned around and, and gave some constructive criticisms. Like mm, that brain, that brain ain't gonna do it anymore if we want to keep going forward here. So let's let's say uh, let's design a limbic system, and that got us so far. And then it's like, mm, we're hitting a roadblock here again, lads. We better uh, we better do something here about this if we want to keep going forward and evolving. So we got a neocortex that got us so far that we got our frontal lobes, and you know whatever the next evolutionary step is going to be. So feedback, constructive criticism are, are like they're they're such an important part of the journey, and it's it's just about being able to bring that to people's awareness, you know. And one one other little thing I just wanted to touch on with you, Pat, was you know we kind of spoke about this thing of you know intuition, um, and objectivity versus subjectivity, and. You know, I know that it's in that book, Thinking, Fasting, and Slow, which I have on Kindle, and I just haven't had a chance to read it. To be honest, I want to get the physical book, because I picked it up in a bookshop one day, and I was like, holy shit, this is a big book yeah. with tiny writing. I was like, I don't think I'll be able to read all that in the Kindle. And um, it's brutal. <laughs> yeah, so, but this idea then of, like, having our own uh, confirmational biases, I know he talks about, like, yeah, biases and, and heuristics in the book, and lately, yeah. lately I've heard Paul Check, you know, answer the question of what he believes health to be. So he was posed the question, what, what does it mean to you to be healthy? And he, he said at the moment, his current answer to that will be, it's, 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 the, it's to have awareness of being aware or have an awareness of your awareness. So kind of the concept behind that being like, you know, we could start talking about like, oh, you know, people have subconscious belief systems that drive certain behaviors 
that they that they have and you know these behaviors that they that they present with are purely you know they're unconscious they're unaware of them and it's about bringing them to their conscious awareness so that then they can you know write a new script in their life and then see reality through their own actual lens rather rather than through conditioned indoctrinations or etc etc but he's like we're, we're kind of viewing that as well through our own uh, indoctrinations and conditionings and it's kind of like to have an awareness of that awareness so you know, like in terms of our own biases and again, going back to subjectivity and objectivity, like have you thought about it, meditated on that or like, you know, kind of a, a question I, I often pose to people is like, have you ever really kind of stepped back and had the thought, have I ever had a thought that was purely mine and mine only that hasn't been, you know, infiltrated by all my experiences up until now? And then I kind of always think, is that what true self-actualization and, and awareness is? Is that what all the great beings over time are trying to tell us? Like, is that really one of the reasons why we're spirit having a human experience? Is it is it transcend beyond all these you know ego masks that were handed down and all again all these conditions and indoctrinations? Is it, is it to be able to strip all those layers away and then finally get down to like, this is who I am. This is why I'm here. So like the, that that awareness of becoming aware and like. Kind of being able yeah. to be aware of our own biases. Have you ever like kind of thought about some of that stuff? I've had those a couple of times, and um, you know, one of them is is I think that that um, you know, if you've taken some PRI classes, you're familiar with the pattern. Yeah. You know, and the pattern is this this organism whose you know your pelvis gets rotated clockwise, and when the pelvis rotates clockwise, it's going to orient the lumbar spine and the bottom of the thoracic spine clockwise. And and then it's kind of like you've got these reflexes that make your eyes look straight ahead. So at the top of the system, you're going to start rotating back to the left so that you can look at the world as you would perceive it as straight. So it begins to essentially twist the thoracic spine and the cervical spine left, okay? Uh, and, and, and look, like, it's, it's essentially like the shape of the human organism is that we have we have these asymmetries and 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 it's kind of like you get to this point where you start questioning why and you play the why game at a very very deep level and you know like ultimately I've played this game in my own head as far as like why are we shaped the way that we're shaped and and in a very stereotypical fashion and and the answer that I've come up with in my own mind, and this was like the way that I pictured this was I actually pictured myself as an eyeball inside the very top of my skull, able to look downward into my body and try to visualize all of the systems interacting with each other. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the primary system that I was able to see was the cardiovascular system. And and I was just picturing this this heart that is existing and, and the heart is, is not central in terms of left, right. It's, it's laterally, it's, it's, it's lateralized to the left. And then when you actually think about the orientation of the heart, the, um, the most superior part of the heart, it's, it's, it's tilted. Like, um, the bottom of the heart is aimed left. The top of the heart is aimed right. It's, it's just, it's like you, you just took it and tilted it, uh, in that, in that fashion, essentially, if I'm looking at you, I would be tilting the heart clockwise or I'm sorry, counterclockwise if I'm looking at you. Okay. Um, so the bottom of the heart is aimed, uh, down 
to the left and forward going out of your body. Okay, so the top of the heart is aimed right back and and so it's it's like and, and the top of my heart, like the ventricles are at the bottom, they squeeze blood and they push blood superiorly, posteriorly, and to the right. You're starting to see this as I'm describing it? Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, so I have a ventricle system that, like, my left ventricle squeezes, and it shoots blood out the aorta. And essentially what I'm saying is that the aorta is directed superiorly, posteriorly, and to the right. And that's the direction that blood leaves the heart in. Okay? And then I also have... Like, if I'm going to squeeze the ventricle, it takes electrical activity to, to cause those muscles to contract. And the electrical activity is by, it's like a, a gun, an action-reaction. I squeeze the trigger, the bullet goes forward, but the gun has kickback. Okay? So, the same thing with a heart. The heart is a cannon, if you really think about it. It squeezes and it shoots a bullet out the, the other side. And it has kickback, and that kickback is electricity that is being sent down to the left and out the front of the body, if you think about it, from a trajectory standpoint. And where do I put the electrodes to measure the EKG, the electrical activity of the heart? I put them on the left ribs. Yeah. I'm not putting them on the right ribs, okay, because I'm going to put them in the direct path of the electricity leaving the heart as the reaction to the action, the kickback of the gun, you know, so the, 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 but the electrical activity of the body, the primary electrical activity, the electric, the electrical fields of the body, they're, they're coming from every organ system in, in terms of how it works. And, and the brain is creating an electric field from the actions of neurons. Uh, but the heart and the brain are the two big electrical engines of the body. And 60 times a minute at rest, I have this gun firing and shooting a bullet up, back, and to the right, a fluid bullet. And at the same time, I have an electrical kickback going down, left, and forward. Okay? So the kick, and it, it's going all the way down my leg, and it's going into the ground, the electricity, and the ground is going to get hit by this electrical force, and then for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So the ground will push back into me, and it'll push up, back, and to the right, since the electricity is going down, left, and forward. Okay, so it's all, so the blood is going up, back, and to the right in my thorax, which is shifting my body mass right and rotating me clockwise, or right, okay? The ground is getting this electrical energy going into it, and then the ground pushes back in a reactive fashion against the electricity, up, back, and to the right, or clockwise. So it's the, the fluid bolus and the electrical reaction that is all participating in rotating my body and knocking me back to the right, so that I stand with a right leg behind a left leg, and my center of mass right shifts laterally to the right and my center of mass rotates clockwise okay so you know that was sort of like a, an original thought that I had and I, I, I looked into it more and I realized that um, that shapes on earth are very interesting 
And, and there's only one shape in the entire Earth that is dictated by gravity. Because the only shape that gravity can make is a sphere. The only thing on Earth that is actually has its shape dictated by gravity is the Earth itself, because it's a sphere. Okay? Everything else, its shape is the, and there's only a few forces that exist that can create shapes. So everything on Earth except for Earth has its morphology created by electromagnetism. So your the way that you're shaped is through the electromagnetic field of your body, which explains kind of why, and there you go, there, there it is. I'm, I'm loving that this is sparking some thoughts in you. Bang. Uh, so it's just that we have an asymmetrical electromagnetic uh, engine in many ways, and it's why you see those left ribs flared the way that you do. And we're going to inhale air asymmetrically. We're going to inhale it up, back and to the right because that's the way that we're moving as a result of these electromagnetic ground reaction forces and um, you know it's kind of like I'm pretty sure that our DNA spins the way that it does because of this fundamental inherent uh, asymmetrical electromagnetic force that's taking place underneath all of this stuff or maybe that is the thing that's driving the functional asymmetrical electromagnetic activity of a heart. And and I just think that like the more pattern that you are as a right lateralized creature could probably be reflected from looking at your EKG because I can measure the axis of your heart in terms of like uh, its frontal plane tilt based on certain EKG markers. And I don't remember exactly what those are. It's been a while since I've analyzed EKGs. And I can also access... Uh, analyze the transverse plane rotation of your heart. And so I know exactly where your heart sits. And I'm just thinking to myself, I bet you my PECs are my transverse plane heart rotated people. And I bet you my, my left AICs are my frontal plane heart uh, lateralized people. Um, and I'm, I'm just very curious about like uh, how, what the synchrony is between the firing of the right ventricle and the left ventricle, because I would assume that you would want them to be different. And I would think that my PECs would have a right ventricle and a left ventricle that fire at the same time, and they're just like bilateralized, and they can't break it up and dissociate the two from each other. So I, I was able to kind of make, in my opinion, some interesting thoughts by by kind of turning off my mind yeah. and visualizing a system um, rather than, than than anything else. And it came to me in a big flash. You know what I mean? Like it, it was just like poof. And and to me, it's like super easy to explain like which muscles are long and which muscles muscles are short because I always go back to visualizing the flow of blood and the flow of electricity. And it's like what would have to be this way <clears throat> based upon just looking at the the fluid dynamics and the electromagnetic dynamics that are acting through the system. I I, I have my own cheat sheet in many ways because I just go back to my visualization that's intuitively mine. And people are like, how do you remember which muscles do which and this, that, and the other thing? And I just go back to that, that one visualization that I had. You know, it's, it, it, you know, and we'll finish on this because I know you, you have to go at 11 and that's 4 o'clock my time. And as, as I said before I came on, I said about 3.30, 4 o'clock, I'll be getting hungry. So I'm going to get my <laughs> but, but it's funny you say that because hmm, about, about that, that, that uh, spark of insight you had 
because on the James Smith episode we spoke about this and James spoke at length about the difference between new knowledge and acquired knowledge mm-hmm. and, and like new knowledge is something, is something that never had existed before but he says to acquire brand new knowledge it's built off acquired knowledge like to bring something okay to bring something. I need to say something before I forget it go ahead because it's the second one of these that I've had okay and and this second one is this that uh Okay, you have prokaryotic and eukaryotic organisms. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and you have a eukaryotic organism that has an advantage because it has all of a sudden figured out if I store an encyclopedia inside my cell, I have an advantage because now I can readily make predictable proteins from the encyclopedia information. And that encyclopedia information is the knowledge gathered by my ancestors. My ancestors have experienced very specific stimuli, and they've created these responses. The responses are behaviors, and behaviors are carried out by proteins. And now I've got the code to make the proteins that can respond to the stimuli in a very specific way. And that's great. That's a huge step up from being a prokaryote. As a eukaryote, I can have stimulus response. And, and then, all of a sudden, <clears throat> it's exactly what you were talking about before. Whoa, I can build a brain, okay? And a brain now has the ability to become more plastic than the DNA, okay? The brain is able to be one step removed from DNA pre-programmed automaton stimulus response behaviors, mm-hmm. Because now it's able to take information from an environment and it's able to potentially come up with a behavior that overrides the structural proteins that respond to a stimuli with a prepackaged behavior. <clears throat> and then brains evolve over time. As you said, the mammal brain is more sophisticated than the reptile brain. The reptile brain is more of an automaton than the mammal brain. And then the primate brain has more of a cortex as compared to more primitive mammal brains. And then the homo sapien brain has a bigger cortex altogether as compared to any of anything else. <clears throat> now the primate, I'm sorry, the homo sapien cortex has more neurological links, axons, that go to the motor system of the body than any other brain. Okay, what this means is that you can control more of your proteins that carry out behaviors with your cortex than any other animal on earth, which means that you can separate the behavior of your proteins from the prepackaged responses that the DNA codes for them. Okay, so brains remove you, brains allow you to have a more variable response to environmental stimuli than DNA. And the, the more advanced the cortex, the more you can override the prepackaged DNA behavior that your ancestors came up with, which means that you now have the potential to carry out a behavior that has never taken place in the history of the earth more than, like, you can do that. So to me, <clears throat> what this fundamentally means is that the point of being human is that you have the ability to create novelty. You don't have to 
simply carry out the behaviors of your ancestors because you have this brain. Now, what this ties into is that because that's not a, a new thought that I had. Okay, where my new thought lives is in the world of entropy. Okay, so entropy is is one of the laws of physics, and entropy essentially states that as we move towards the future, entropy will increase. Yeah. Okay, and and in reality, time is our perception of entropy. Like we believe like we understood what happened in the past because the past has a, is a lower entropy state than the present. So we're pretty sure that what happened in the past happened exactly the way it does. It's, the past is more predictable. The present is a higher entropy state than the past and the future is a higher entropy state than the present. And it's always going in a direction of more and more entropy, which means more and more unpredictable. Okay, so brains need to continue to grow as we move into the future because the future is less predictable. The more we go into the future, the more unpredictable the future becomes from an entropy law perspective. As a result of the unpredictable nature of future, I, can, I have less and less and less of an ability to rely on the prepackaged nature of my DNA behaviors. And I need to override the intuition and instincts that are actually built into me. I need to actually work harder to think with my brain to analyze the everly increasing complexity of the environment that we're going to be living in in the future. So it's, it's like I needed to say that because um, that is the most recent novel thought that I personally have had. That that is the point of the brain, and that is kind of the point of human evolution. And, and it's based on entropy as the thing that we're trying to deal with. We're in a race against it. Unfortunately, like the actual race surface that we're running on is moving, and it's actually moving in a more unpredictable direction all the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's it's funny just talking about unpredictability because it's one thing I'll, I'll leave on as well. And I, literally before, you, before I came on Skype with you, I was typing out my thoughts on a Word document. I'll probably stick it up on Facebook because I think what I'm going to start doing is just like just to journal my thoughts and just get them out and even get people just to like, feed, you know, give me feedback on it. But I was speaking a lot about this with uh, one of the interns at Altus Jordan and the concept of uncertainty and death. So I know like, you know, starting off, that sounds odd. You know, like, no, it's great. But uh, not 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 to you, but maybe to you know, just like you know, as in like, whoa, we're getting into another heavy topic here. But I suppose people are well used to me by this stage, so that they're probably not surprised at all. Um, but this concept of uncertainty and death, and and you know, it's kind of a it's 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 a it's a collection of thoughts from again the work of Shilton Pierce and just even my own thoughts and, and meditations that. Uh, and and actually Robert Sapolsky's work by Zebra's Uncle Ulcers because in, in that book Sapolsky talks about one of the biggest forms of stress to humans is uncertainty mm-hmm. and uh, then that, the, the idea came to me that this is probably why as humans we build up ego identities and also why we start to cling on to dogmatic belief systems so whether they be religious or ideological or political etc because they give us a sense of certainty and control in our lives and in one of Shilton Pierce's books he, he just basically and again, I'm going to paraphrase this, but one of the concepts in the books is like, he's like, all right, let's cut all the bullshit away. 
And he says, let's really ask the question that everybody wants to know. And that is, what's next? And you're talking about like entropy and everything getting more unpredictable. And he's like, and the answer is, nobody knows. So the only thing that we can do as human beings is come to a level of acceptance about that. And if you look at any of the great spiritual leaders over the course of our history so far, like you look at Zen Buddhism, that's one of the core tenets, is to come to a, a, a place of acceptance, unconditional love, unconditional acceptance, and that if you can actually come to a place or get to a place where you can meditate and really think about the uncertainty of death and come to a place of acceptance that I just don't know what is next and that I'm okay with that, well, then why would anything else in life in terms of like ridiculous problems ever even enter the picture? He's like, because you, mm-hmm. you, you've just come to terms with the biggest question of them all, which is, I am okay uh, not knowing what is next. And he's like, so why would you worry about your iPhone breaking or you lost some money or you had to, you hit a car and then your insurance company didn't pay for it and they have to pay back the damage done. And the reason I bring that up is because that happened to me, <laughs> you know, but like, yeah. you know, like all these like insignificant things. And then the, 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 the sort of the, 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 the learning and growth that I got from meditating on these questions was that it just kind of gave me more appreciation of why people build up these ego identities, why people have such dogmatic beliefs in things like religious, uh, um, belief systems and again ideologies and, and, and political belief systems because they're safe you know that they're safe to love that they're, they're safe to hang on to they're always there they're you know they're, they're just they're just safe they're, they're, they give us a sense of certainty and I think that if we could actually meditate more on the uncertainty and our of, the, of, of what's next and meditate on our death and meditate on the fact that we're mortals you know meditate on our mortality that a lot of that stuff wouldn't it wouldn't be needed Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, and the and the reason I bring that up too is because I feel maybe that was an original thought, maybe with me to a certain degree, but built off the back of Shilton Pierce and Sapolsky's work, and uh, just also it's it's given me more appreciation again for even in our profession part of you know physical preparation of it's, it's the same concept with coaches who have certain uh, belief systems, you know that this is this is the only way to get athletes ready, this is the only way to rehab, you know I'm a I'm a PRI guy or I'm a fucking FMS mm-hmm. guy or I'm a this guy, I'm a that guy, I'm a Mike Boyle guy, or I'm a West Side guy, and all this. And it's just, again, people hang on to these identities because they're, they're, they feel safe, they feel certain. Yep. So just that, yep. that, that's, that's kind of been a thing in my mind lately, the, the, the idea of, you know, the biggest question of all is like, what is after this life? And the fact that we have to come to a, a place we accept and be able to say that, I don't know, and I'm going to have to eventually come to a place where I'm going to be okay with that. And if not, I'm going to live a life of, Fear, of just living in fear all the time and trying to cling on to things that are giving me artificial security. Well, you just basically summarize the the end point of the book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Yeah. Um, I never read that. You know, I've never read that, now. Well, you know, I, I think it's, I don't know, I thought it was a little bit overrated. I've, I heard a lot of people talking so much, and I read it, and I was like, okay. But the end of it is, is pretty fantastic, but you, you don't need to read it because you already, you already know it. Like you came to the same conclusion, like essentially the end of it is talking about this. Um, there's a professor that kind of got fired from like every job he ever had. Mm. And he was like a real pain in the ass. Uh, <clears throat> I can relate to him, but uh, <laughs> you know, the uh, assimilate, the guy, assimilate or die. <laughs> the, the guy ended up getting cancer and, um, and then he wrote a book 
that has become the only important philosophy book in modern times, according to most most scholars. And the guy's point was that um, that humans are are very they don't want to deal with their own death as a certainty. Is it what what's the name of that book? I don't remember. It's it's, it's not in, it's not when breath becomes air, not that book, is it? I, I honestly have no no memory of it whatsoever. Okay. Like uh, yeah, I, I went through it real fast, but I I, I did grasp the idea, uh, the specifics of the person's name and the name of the book. I, I don't remember. Okay, okay, I'm sure I'm sure somebody will, will have it. But um, yeah. the guy said that um, we're we're all we we struggle so much with accepting our own death, hmm. and um, and as a result of that, we do all kinds of really shitty things, like trying to build things that will represent us after our death and that the problem with modern society is is all of these people who want to be remembered forever um and and it's because like you'll go to all of these lengths to like to try to, to try to create something that stands in your name and if you just think about all of like the wars that have taken place it's for the immortality of certain people and, and it's kind of like, have we done any good to anybody as a result of this, like, immortality-seeking culture? And we keep seeking it more and more and more. And, um, you know, the book Homo Deus, uh, which is the sequel to Sapiens, kind of starts off with this same notion of, like, Google has actually started the Calypso Project, which is the uh, – they're funding this scientific project to try to solve death. Um, through technology, like they, you know, uh, Peter Thiel has openly stated that he believes that he is the first person on earth that will be immortal through technology. Um, and it's kind of like, oh no, now we're going to create the biggest problem that we've ever encountered in, in the history of the world because it's just more people that are failing to deal with their own death. And, um, <clears throat> You know, part of part of what you were talking about struck a chord is, is really like the last thing I want to say because because we definitely are going to have to have to wrap this thing up for both of our our, our needs. But um, I was having a conversation with Ben's dad in Costa Rica, <clears throat> and he's an incredible person. Really I was just is. about to say real quick, he sounds like a really cool guy. He he is about as cool as you can ever find. And uh, we were discussing what you were talking about with like, oh, my iPhone's broken and. You know, like uh, my, my shoes or, uh, you know, the, I lost the laces in my shoes, whatever. And, and it's like so insignificant when, when you consider like the big picture of everything. But what we've talked about was that everything is both things at the same time. Because if nothing matters, your life sucks. Uh, like there's no meaning to anything. Yes. But in reality, if you hold on to meaning so hard – you have no ability to accept anything because you're so like concerned about everything. So it's kind of like, can you place value on the right things in life? Like your ability to like, to be a high functioning person is probably based on the quality of your filter to actually know what to place value on. Yeah. And, and like you can choose at any point in time to become aware of, of the degree of importance of a situation because some things are important 
You know what I mean? Like everything can be as important as you want to make it out to be. Mm. Again, we're going back to perception. <clears throat> but you have the choice. Like you can step back from it and realize that you're a speck in an infinite cosmos, both externally and internally, because you can ponder on the intricacies and details of the way in which ATP synthase is utilizing a hydrogen proton gradient right now in trillions of cells inside your body. And you can picture the path of oxygen falling down from the external environment into your lungs, into your blood, into your cell, into the mitochondrial machinery, and being the recipient of hydrogen at the end of this proton gradient. Or you can ponder on the limitless expansion of the universe at, at this point in time. Or you can ponder on how pissed off you are because you can't find your normal headphones because you think you left them on the plane two days ago on your way back from Costa Rica, as I was real angry about before I got on this call with you today. Like, I can, I can choose to, to, to focus on one or the other, but underneath all of it, it's both at the same time. And that, that knowing that it's both at the same time is, is difficult to, to deal with because it's uncertainty again. Mm. And, and it's just like the same thing with death. Like you can make it as important as you want. Like as Sapolsky likes to say, like you can, you can think about right now inside your body, that current beat of your heart brings you one beat closer to dying. And it's probably going to accelerate your heart rate. And you can make that as, as horrible as you want to imagine it. Um, or you can choose to not, you can choose to, to do something else about it. You can, you can choose to accept the fact that you're going to die and that death is actually an evolutionary stage that we're in because death is a new evolutionary step. There's plenty of, of creatures and life forms on this planet that actually don't age and don't die of, of like aging. Like aging to death is a new step that's useful. Evolution selected it. Because I get to clear, and again, it's an entropy-dominated thing. Like, if, if I die, it's because my old proteins and my old brain, which solved the world in its own way, like, it needs to go so that it can clear room for the next one to come along. This newer brain that has the potential to make newer connections in, in an everly, ever-expanding, complex environment. Like I should be grateful for death. Like I, it's the same thing as the work environment. If those old guys don't retire, I can never take my place. And, and scientists have known this, like how does the next great theory in science come about? The old scientists retire and the new scientists come into exactly. to work. Exactly. So death is the, death is a very useful thing death, and evolution death, has selected it. Death gives birth. So yeah. like I mean like the the like I always go back to Alan Watts. I mean Watts was one of the person who made me appreciate contrast. You can't have the universe without contrast. Like the, the, you wouldn't know life if there was no death. So it's a completely fruitless endeavor to try and have someone live forever. Life would lose all meaning. So it would. Yep. Be grateful for the fact that death exists and that you're going to die. And that's the thing. It goes back to this condition we spoke. I spoke about negative feedback. Uh, or constructive criticism, we're, we're conditioned to see death as this terrible, terrible thing. Like, think about funerals, blackness and people looking yep. shy. And it's just like, 
I always think that, you know, at my, if I have a funeral, I'm like, I want everyone to fucking celebrate the fuck. It's going to be unbelievable. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> like it's, it's, and it's inevitable. So it goes back to this idea of acceptance. And one last thing I want to finish on is Shilton Pierce. Like, he's, uh, people haven't read Joseph Shilton Pierce. Like, they, they, like his, his works are amazing. He passed away last year. He was an old man, but I, I, I always had this dream of meeting him one day. So it'll have to be when, when I pass away and we meet spiritually. But, but, uh, he, he, he has this great, uh, concept in his book about, intellect which is the brain and intelligence which is your heart and he and he says uh intellect is like our ability to like you know invent cars and go to the moon and, and you know modern technology and you, you you can appreciate this now come back from the retreat from ben because like we don't want to show the baby out with the bat water like part of evolution is being innovative and stepping forward so listen all the technological things we're doing is great but Shilton Pierce says that, that, that we never ask the follow-up question. And I'm getting onto this because of the idea of we want to live forever. So Shilton Pierce asks, okay, the first question we've asked is, can it be done? Like, could someone extend their life and, like, offset that? Well, it's looking like they could. And then he says, we never ask this very, very, very important second question. Is it appropriate? Yeah. And, like, he did, one of the stories he used in his book is now, like, given childbirth. He's like, childbirth for centuries was female-driven. The females used to fuck off into a, a black, dark, warm, very safe, secure room. Birth was never painful. It was grand. Everything went well. And he says, then Western man, like, he just used this analogy, but he said, that then men with their white coats, he's just using this as an analogy, but we're getting the idea. Yeah. It had to interfere with the birthing process because they thought they could make it better. You know, and again, mm-hmm. listen, listen, I don't want people to come back and say, well, you know, I'm just using this as some type of story to get the idea across. But he's like, he's like, so they, they, they ask the question, you know, can we interfere with the process? Like, yes, we can. It's like, but is it appropriate? Like, like nuclear bombs. Can we make a nuclear bomb? Yes, we can. But is it really appropriate for a human race? No, it's yep. not. You know, can, can we start a war and kill those people? Yes, we can. Is it appropriate? Uh, I'd like to think it's not. Can I, like, try and extend my life, live forever, and then have overpopulation and fuck up everything for the generation to come after? And then, like not potentially have new solutions that will, will be seen through new and fresh eyes, which is the new generation underneath because people are living too long. Yes, we could do, we could extend it, but then is it appropriate? So it just goes back to that question. And then the idea again of living forever. I mean, the universe is yin yang. You, 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 like we need contrast. So Alan, Alan Watts also talks about the fruitless endeavor. Like he talks about in one of his uh, lectures is stop trying to make the world all good. He's like, the universe is contrast, left, right, hot, cold, good, bad, or good and evil, uh, left, right, up, down. I think it's a left, right, twice there. But you get the idea, man, woman. He's like, I wouldn't know Robbie if, it, if there was no Pat. Or, you know, I wouldn't know I was a man if there was no women. I wouldn't know my left without my right. So you would not know life or appreciate it if there was no death. So, like, I'm not I'm not saying that life extension is a bad thing. I'm saying trying to live forever, though, is a fruitless endeavor. Yeah, I agree. And it's funny, like... Uh Homo Deus is great. Like it's it's awesome. I'm 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 not even halfway through it. But on that topic, it, it he just brings up the easiest point ever to imagine. Like, is would doubling our lifespan really be that great? Yeah. Because if we were able to double our lifespan, you know who'd still be in charge of Russia? Stalin. Like he'd be coming in at like a cool like 120 right now. He'd still have like another 30 years of ruling under his belt to yeah. be able to look forward to. Like, be careful what you wish for, because you might still have Stalin in charge of Russia. Yeah. Um, That's really you know, good there's, point. there's a million ways that you can spin it. And the other way that you can spin it is, like, he also brings up the fact, like, you know, back when electricity was invented, everybody freaked out. 
because that's the time where like Frankenstein was written and people thought the end of the world was coming. And you know what happened is electricity came along and probably the world is a lot easier to live in and better as a result of it in some ways. You could probably make the opposite case that like the light bulb screw up, screwed up our circadian rhythm and blah, blah, blah. Like we're diseased and all this kind of stuff. But I don't know. Like I'm, I don't want to trade in electricity right now. Electricity is kind of cool. It, it really does come back to your perception. Um, but some things are out of your hand. Like there are these very powerful people who are immortality seekers who can make your life pure shit. Um, if they manage to actually do it or pull it off, like, but the pursuit of immortality may be the worst thing possible, I guess is, is, it's super interesting. And it's amazing that we got here because apparently it's the most important question in all of modern thinking. But uh, what do you know? A couple of, uh, of, of Irish DNA-driven creatures that like to, um, to lift weights and, and do athletic-related things like also think about stuff. It's, uh, it's a funny world. It re really is, and I'm, I'm very grateful for it. To, uh, to, to uh, Neanderthals? I mean, very likely, yeah. That's that's the thing. Like, uh, I, I would I would think, especially we have very contrasting uh, like morphologies. You know what I mean? And uh, so, so I think anybody seeing the two of us together would probably come to different conclusions about the things that we might talk about or think about, um, particularly interacting together. But you know, it's it's always like uh, I, I really felt like it was such a, a great uh, pleasure to be able to actually meet in person out in Arizona, like it was, it was awesome. And, and, and what I think will, will drive that point home is I spent more time having a good conversation with you than I did watching the New England Patriots play the Steelers in the AFC championship game. It was almost like I didn't know that that game was happening because we were just having a, a great conversation and laughing and enjoying ourselves. Yeah. So for anybody to be able to pull my attention away from a New England Patriots game is like next to impossible. And then for the game that would send them to the Super Bowl, like I, I don't even see how that was real. Like that's that's ridiculous. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure. And I I gotta admit one thing that Pat came to the track the next day and I was like, yeah, you come in and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a ride back to the airport. And then like I got caught up in work and I was like, oh, I, I can't. <laughs> and I, I could just I could just see you going, you son of a bitch. And I was really like, and then like later that day, I was like, you know, I probably should have offered like to pay for his Uber. And I was like, oh my uh, God. Look, it's something that I can relate to because it would have been something I would have done to somebody else. Like with the best intentions in the world. And then I'm like, hey, you know, I'm actually looking at the logistics of this and I actually can't do this for you. Uh, but I trust you. You're going to figure this thing out. Yeah, so, but uh, I didn't even think twice about it to tell you the truth. But uh, that's a lie. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you were like, oh, I really, I don't think I did. I really didn't. <laughs> but uh, no, it was, it was, it was so good. Like any, it was great just to get, yeah, get a few hours with you, you know, and, and obviously meet the next day. And you know, it was, it was so funny, guys. Just to finish on this, is that Pat was watching some of the, some of the, the track athletes train, and and uh, there was one athlete. I won't say names, but there was one athlete who who's been struggling lately with some low back issues, and straight away. And Pat will admit this himself because he says to me times like I'm not a track and field coach, but I can tell that that athlete there is is probably one of your not worst, but like one who struggles the most. And I was like, yeah, how do you know? And you were just like, I just can tell by how she moves. And then he goes low back pain. I was like, really chronic low back issues. And he was just like, yeah, you, it's like movement is movement. Yeah. So yeah. It was it's just it's yeah. That's all it is. It's like I've I've put in my ten thousand hours of study and anatomy and movement and all that kind of stuff, and it's sort of like. 
you know, I can spot the guy that's going to probably win the medal, and I can spot the person that's absolute rubbish, and um, and it's real easy. That's that's kind of easy to do, and uh, I don't know. It's I wouldn't have been able to do it originally as a coach. I would have had no idea, but all of a sudden, like the the master's eye can distinguish more information from looking at less physical presentation in front of them. Pat, we'll, uh, we'll leave it there for today. I'm definitely going to get you back on again. I, I think you're definitely maybe like someone I'd like to have on as a regular guest, you know, like get you on like maybe, you know, once every two months or something. So we get you on like eight or ten times a year or whatever. You know, we've got you on once every two months. That would be what? That would be six times, you know. But uh, my maths are awful there. I said once, two months, and I was like eight or ten times. We were like, that's bad maths. <laughs> Anyway. I, I would be more than happy to do yeah, that. Yeah, because I, I think the, 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 the time so far is just you know, in terms of we, we get times of the weekend and the, the conversation is so good. And I think a lot of people would really like these conversations, you know. And, and the fact that they go on for a while, I get like, you know, two to three podcasts out and I'll split them up. So it's, it's pretty awesome. But I'll wrap this up, right? We'll say goodbye offline. And uh, so, guys, listen, we're coming up to right on two hours, hour 59 minutes. I knew this was going to happen in terms of it was going, the conversation was just going to be awesome. Um, kind of wanted to send around, you know, Pat's weekend away with Ben in Costa Rica, the, 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 the working on the brain. And, you know, we spoke a lot about the brain. And, and we'll speak more about mass too, maybe when it's coming up and coming around. Oh, yeah. When that's getting released. That. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, you evil, evil bastard. If it's, if it's, if it's worse than mass one. Um, anyway, guys, listen, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for downloading. You know, share the podcast, do the usual things on. You know, it's, it's kind of ironic. We were speaking about instant gratification. I'm going to ask them to share this on social media. But, uh, for now, guys, uh, take care, uh, be well, and stay strong. And I just want to say thanks again to Mr. Pat Davidson. Thank you. All right, see you guys.